Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. When the armies of the Caliphate entered Jerusalem in 638, the city was quite different from what it is today, one of the most important cities for three religions. As John Hosler writes in his latest book, Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of War and Peace, quote, Three things may seem nearly inconceivable to modern readers, that the Temple Mount, a place of such incredible significance and symbolism, once served as Jerusalem's garbage dump, that it once went wholly unmentioned in a political treaty, and that a conqueror essentially acquired it with little effort. Throughout John Hosler's book, starting from the Persian invasion of 614 and ending with the Sixth Crusade in 1229, John explains how the successive falls of the cities to invaders ended up setting the boundaries for interreligious relations for centuries afterwards. Invaders may have wanted to expel their religious competitors, but soon learned that governing the city without their help was impossible, eventually settling on a system of grudging tolerance and respect for each other's holy sites. John Hosler is a professor of military history at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, an expert in medieval warfare in Europe and the Near East. He is the author of 60 essays and reviews, and also the author and editor of seven books, including John of Salisbury, Military Authority of the 12th Century Renaissance, and The Siege of Acre, 1189-1191, the latter of which was named among the best books of 2018 by the Financial Times and the Times Literary Supplement. He is a trustee of the U.S. Commission for Military History, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and he sits on the editorial board for War Studies Journal. Today, John and I talk about the many falls of Jerusalem, to the Persians, to the Arabs, to the Crusaders, and how the many negotiations over the city helped build a durable status quo that persisted for centuries. So, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I wanted to start with the reason behind your book. Um, You know, at in your introduction, you say you, you want to position the book as a way to push back against narratives that put Jerusalem at the center of, you know, intractable religious conflict that's been going on for centuries, if not millennia. Um, I guess before we get into uh, your actual argument, what is it about seeing Jerusalem as the center for this religious conflict that distorts how we understand the region and the city? Hi, and um, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um I think it's it's based on a partial reading 
of the history, a partial reading of the sources. And whenever we look in the past, we always sort of do this. We, we have narratives in our mind and things fit together in certain ways. And we read pieces of evidence that are striking, that are interesting, uh, that, that really catch the eye. And certainly religious violence does that. And I think there are some notable pieces uh, to that narrative in Jerusalem's past, and they naturally draw the eye, right? Um, not just in the medieval period, of course, in the ancient period with the, you know, the, um, with the, the sack in the old Testament with the sack and, uh, after, you know, the, um, the Roman arrival in the year 70, um, those sorts of things are, are in the mind. So we, we look at a, a piece of violence in the middle ages and it very much fits the pattern, right? Um, we've heard about these things before, uh, and now we're seeing more of it. And so I think that's what it is. It's, it's sort of getting, uh, led astray by the, the dynamic, the, um, the, the explosive, uh, gritty things in history. And what I found is that, well, there's of course a lot of history in the period that, that does not involve those sorts of things. So if you, if you look at Jerusalem from the seventh to what I do in the book till the 13th century, that's, you're talking over 600 years, which I like to tell my students, I say, you know, of course this is, you know, almost three times, you know, the time America has been around. This is a really, really long time when you're talking seven centuries. So in that period of time, if you have you know, this sack of the city, this outburst of violence. Yeah, that's really important. But it, it sort of begged the question to me, well, what's going on at the rest of the time? Um, obviously, they're not fighting every single day for every single year. So uh, if they were, there'd be no people left in the city. Everyone would be dead. So there must be something else going on. And so I decided to kind of explore this in one of my electives courses that I, I teach at um, at Fort Leavenworth here uh, on the history, the, the roots of violence in the Middle East. And I had my students look at sources and they read um, narratives and, and surveys of what was going on in Jerusalem. And, and we started to figure out together, it was kind of profound, actually, as we're, we're going over the sources and they were to say things like, you know, professor, this, does, this doesn't sound all that bad, or this sounds like they're, they're actually sort of getting along. And I would scratch my head and say, yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? And, you know, you look up at your slides on the, on the board, you know, these shocking violent episodes, and then you, you see the huge gaps in between. And so I think what I wanted to set out to do with the book is say, what does the more complete history say about this city? Uh, if you were to fill in the blanks in between, what else is going on? And, and it has to be over a long duration, not just over a course of a few decades, because you can have a few decades that are very tumultuous. So over a long duration, what does it look like? How many of these things are there? How many attacks are there? How many deaths are there actually? And the more we studied that, we looked into it. Uh, and then once the, my students got me, um, got the, the juices flowing, I, I started looking into it more with the research and found that actually that the dominant story is one of not violence, um, which then begged all kinds of other questions. Well, am I missing something? Is there is there something else in the record that I'm not seeing? And so I decided, well, I better just take a, um, a deeper dive into this and look across. And so I think that was sort of my first realization that uh, the story that I knew that I had learned in graduate school that, that most people learn in school is, is one of this unending violence. And I found it that's not really the case. And so what I sought to do is just say, well, first of all, what is the full story as far as we can ascertain it? And then once we have that, then you can kind of step back and say, okay, can I derive some kind of meaning from this? And so that's the process by which I, I sort of approach the project. Right. And, you know, just echoing the point you tell your students, I mean, it's, um, it is a very, it is a very long period of time, um, over seven centuries. And I guess, 
part of the problems with um with like a starting from modern history moving back is that it kind of modern history seems to compress everything everything seems to happen in the span of like a century if it hasn't happened in the past 10 years and it's very old whereas the time frames you're dealing here are much longer um but but kind of getting into this getting getting into what you recognize and kind of seeing um much more dialogue much more tolerance i guess i i want to quickly just drill down into what you mean by by tolerance um i think we always want to be careful about um about taking, I guess, my own modern understanding of what tolerance is and re- what religious tolerance is, and extending that backwards. Um, so, I guess, what did what did religious tolerance actually look like in uh, medieval Jerusalem? Right, that's a great question because you're right; it's a trap. Uh, the way we look at toleration, the way we define it today, uh, would not have been recognizable to people living in the in the in the eighth century, in the tenth century, in the twelfth century. Um, whereas today, we we look and say, well, we like to tolerate this this broader range of views, and we can still come out of it with a healthy respect for our neighbor. Right. So, my neighbor believes something very different from me. That's okay. Uh, I'm not going to judge him to be less of a person than I am, uh, even though I find his views abhorrent, um, that sort of thing. And if he's listening, I'm, I'm not talking about my actual neighbor, <laughs> who's a wonderful person. But um, that that's kind of sort of the modern idea. This is much more um, the way I, I tried to think of a, a pithy way to say it in the book. And, and the best I could come up with was simply putting up with putting up with your neighbors, putting up with people who annoy you, who believe what you think are profoundly wrong things, uh, even blasphemous things, um, and essentially having the patience to deal with them, to put up with them throughout the day, uh, to not attack them or to not kill them. Um, so I don't like that these people with these other views are living uh, next to me. There's not much I can do about it right now. Um, I'd prefer it be different, but it isn't. So I guess I can sort of begrudgingly deal with it. And at the end of the day, they might be customers coming into my shop. And and if they come into my shop, I'll sell something to them and I'll make money. And I, I still might not like them very much, but but maybe we can engage with each other on a um, on a community level. And so that's the difference, I think. There isn't this kind of, um, I have a profound respect for your divergent beliefs because the, the thought really is, is that your divergent beliefs are are inherently wrong. And if looked at in a religious view, um, you know, punishable uh, by certain um, worldly and eternal rewards. Um, So making that clear is really important in the book that we don't come across and say, this is a happy place with everyone, um, you know, just just skipping through the daisies and and loving the company of a nice, diverse society. Um, Many of these people, if they had their druthers, they would have a Muslim uh, theocracy in the city. They would have a Christian theocracy in the city. They would not have to deal with the others. And in fact, the, the Crusaders try this after 1099, after the first crusade, they expel all the Muslims, they expel all the Jewel Jews and decide, you know, we're just going to live with Christians. And they very quickly find out that that's untenable because you you need customers in your shops. You need visitors coming from abroad. Uh, you need those people that you have a general distaste for. Uh, and so putting up with is, is the way I sort of phrase it. I'm sure there are many more eloquent ways to saying it, uh, but that's kind of what it felt like in my gut. Uh, these people are here. I don't like it, but I can find a way to deal with it. So, so the book starts with the, the very first fall of Jerusalem. Um, I believe it's the Persian invasion of 614, uh, which is the first the book covers. Um, 
what's the state of Jerusalem before before that event? Um, like who? How does it? How does that city sit in the various political, uh, various empires of the region at the time? Yeah, it's very interesting. The um, Jerusalem had begun to be an important place to Christians a few centuries beforehand. Um, it was a Christian city. It was a outpost garrison town of the Byzantine Empire. Um, perched kind of, you know, on the, on the southern borders down by Arabia, uh, down towards the possessions in Egypt. Um, it had been a city that uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, had come to and had famously uh, excavated. Um, she was she was Christian, of course, and she uh, purportedly located the site of the crucifixion, the site of the resurrection uh, of Jesus. Um, that supposedly located the three crosses from the New Testament story and began to build churches and, and Christian uh, foundations there. And it went on like that for the next three centuries with a um, with a Christian Eastern Roman Empire that we we sometimes call Byzantium today. That name's starting to fall out of favor, um, but it's 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 a Christian zone. Now that said as it becomes an important place and start to realize, well, if this is the place where Jesus lived, died and, and, and came back to life, then that's important to Christians. Um, and so you had a lot of Christians living there, but it seems to have been a very diverse society. We know that there was a um, sizable Jewish community living in Jerusalem even then, right? Uh, the, some had come back after the, uh, the horrific uh, oppressions of the zealot revolts under the uh, Roman emperors. Uh, many had come back to Jerusalem and, and are living there. And, particularly in the communities around Jerusalem, there are significant um, Jewish communities in, um, in those various towns and villages, um, as well as um, other people. You talk about the Bedouins and, um, and, and just these other ethnicities, uh, Arabs, uh, people living in the city, and they're all interacting with each other. And you can see that that's the case because all the way up until that siege in 614, when the Persians arrive, who we typically don't think of as one of the, the great movers and shakers in this this um, you know this this long story of, of religious strife in Jerusalem. When the Persians arrive, uh, the sources mention all of these other people living in the cities, and 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 some of them are resisting the Persians, and some of them are joining in with the Persians. Um, so you have a, um, a a quite a diverse community there along the edges of that that sort of tolerance I was talking about before, right? The sort of grudging neighborliness, right? Um, at the same time, we know that there's a lot of tensions because particularly for the Jewish communities, life in that part of Byzantium is not very pleasant uh, in the early 7th century. Uh, there had been a number of repressions of Jewish communities by um, the emperor. Uh, the emperor Heraclius is the one who's sort of most infamous for this, the sort of cracking down on Jewish rights, on Jewish privileges, heavy taxes, um, the, you know, um, these sorts of things. And so there's a tense nature there, um, where there's this sense that, that they are under siege and they're not entirely happy with how the Byzantines have been treated them. And, and you can sort of see why after reading it, uh, the, the different sources. So when the Persians show up, it becomes this sort of um, great moment where they have to choose sides. And it's not surprising that the Jews in the city sort of go along with the Persians. I mean, they've, they've been living with these Christians who have been, yes, putting up with them, but also slowly taking away, um, their ability to operate freely. Um, so it's, it's diverse. 
Uh, you have a lot of different groups, religious groups, ethnic groups. You have a lot of travelers from all over. Um, but there's an uneasiness about it as if um, almost, I don't want to say like, like the top's going to blow off. There's going to be great some event because we know that actually happened. But but it's hard to read a lot of optimism in those sources kind of leading up to the events of the year 614. Um, so the first kind of then part of your book deals with how um, Muslim groups, especially the Arabs, uh, take control of Jerusalem. Um, and that's a period where uh, I think a lot of the Islamic holy sites that, that are most famous are actually built during this period. So this period really changes the city. Um, how, I guess, what actually, how did these groups, such as the Arabs, take control of Jerusalem? And what were the policies they made, the things they tried to do that, that then changed the city from then on? Right. It's, it's actually very different than what happens with the Persians, um, which is a, a complete sack of the city, a destruction of the holy sites inside of their massacre in the streets, uh, the taking of enormous number of prisoners, those sorts of things. The siege uh, by the Arabs in 638 is actually pretty, pretty low key, pretty low intensity. Uh, it's, it's led by the second caliph, uh, the so-called caliph or successor of Muhammad. His name is Umar ibn al-Khattab, and I'll just call him Umar for short. Um, Umar is a, is, a, is a great military leader and, um, and one of the more famous people in Islamic history because he is the man who, who reclaims Jerusalem. He rendezvous at the city with, um, with one of his um, principal generals who has put the city under a partial blockade. Um, doesn't seem to have been an awful lot of fighting, um, sort of, you know, blocking the gates, not letting anything in or out. Umar arrives and the, the patriarch of the city, uh, that the, the Christian leader who's sort of the de facto governor of the place, his name is Sophronius. Sophronius surrenders the city to Umar. He simply surrenders the city. He knows that he can't fight him off. Uh, this siege comes on the heels of an earlier disaster, just two years before at the Battle of Yarmouk in 636, uh, which is over um, further north and, and, um, and east, a little east of Galilee. Um, at Yarmouk, the, the Byzantine field armies had been destroyed, um, absolutely wiped out uh, by the Arabic commanders. And so there's no army to protect the city. There's, there's no one to come and save it. So you, you have the image of the citizenry huddling behind the walls, uh, just sort of waiting for the worst to come. And so the patriarch surrenders the city, he simply says, yeah, I can't hold it. I can't fight off. So, um, so Umar can have it if you agree to these various terms. And you have a very, very interesting story that's really part and parcel of, of modern Jerusalem's um, state of affairs even today. The patriarch tells Umar, he says, you can have the city, right, as long as you guarantee that the Christian sites within the city, that our churches, uh, you know, our, our established foundations, um, are, will remain with us, that we still have the rights to them, that we can still live in the city and we still have the, re, the ability to practice Christianity and we can still worship in our buildings. And um, in exchange, you can have Umar control of the city, you know, belongs to you. You can raise tax revenue, all these sorts of things. And also you can have the part that, that, 
that you really covet, which is the Temple Mount, um, the, the plateau inside the old city of Jerusalem that we know today holds these, these very famous um, Muslim sites and in the past had been the spot of the old Temple of Solomon and the Temple of Herod, um, these, these temples that, that you read about in, in the Bible that had been destroyed. Um, so at the time, it seems that Sophronius, after reading the sources, I can't detect that he knows anything about the Temple Mount and its importance. And if he does know anything, he, he certainly doesn't care enough to, to stake his deal on it. At the time, it's said to be used as a garbage heap. It's essentially a big dumping ground in the city. They take the garbage up there and, uh, and dump it up top, presumably so the smell would waft into the air and, and stay out of the city. So the deal is made. So Umar gets the city. He gets the Temple Mount. The Christians get to stay in their churches. And Umar will have the Temple Mount Mount cleared off, and then soon building will begin on that uh, plateau of what will become the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Shrine of the Dome of the Rock. And archaeologists are are kind of locked in a little debate about when exactly those were built, Um, but we know that the the first construction is is tried in the 600s, and then the, uh, the buildings are completed a little later on. So the Arabs get the city essentially in a walk. They get their holy spots in a walk. They don't really have to fight that hard for them. And that establishes the basis of what we call today, what the law calls in Israel, the status quo agreement. Um, The idea that here are the foundations of these churches and they are to remain intact and the rights there are retained. Um, And you kind of get this dichotomy. You get this, um, you know, Muslims up top worshiping on the mountain, Christians down below worshiping in the city. Uh, So it's really a remarkable moment. um, And I would argue a complete break with the ancient world. And if you study late antique history, it is full of horrific sieges, mass massacres of populations, absolute devastation, exactly what had happened in 614 under the Persians. And this ushers in something different, um, moderation, Um, taking a city with relatively uh, little difficulty, no massacre, no mass imprisonment of the people, instead granting of rights in perpetuity. Uh, so the Arab siege of 638 is a, a very foundational and very interesting start to the medieval story of Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Well, that leads me to to a question. And maybe this this jumps ahead in the history a bit. Um, you know, I think in reading through the book, I think I noticed that a lot of the negotiations, a lot of the discussions focus primarily on uh, Muslim-Christian relations. 
Um, the other community that sees Jerusalem as very important, the Jews don't seem to be quite as involved in these discussions, and they often, um, it seems like they they kind of get screwed a bit. I, I going back to the Persian um, invasion at the very beginning, uh, it seems like even the Jews, despite any any attempts by the Jews to kind of secure their own position in the city, they all get kicked out again, don't they? Um, right. So, so I guess I guess. What place do does the Jewish community have in these negotiations, in these agreements, if they have any place at all? Yeah, they really have no place in it at all. The um, the, the difficulty for the Jewish community is that it's it's out of power, right? Um, it mm. does not. The Jews really had not held the city ever since the Romans had destroyed the um, the the temple in the year seventy. They hadn't really had political control. They had some ability to worship for a while until the Bar Kokhba revolt in the second century kind of ended that. Um, but they're not in political power and they will not be in political power until um, really in, in the 20th century. But that's even misleading because that's not that's not the Jews per se. It's the Israeli state. Right. Uh, it's more of a secular idea. So the, the Jews don't have a seat at the table. They just don't. And the population fluctuates tremendously in the city. There are some times when the Jews are numerous and we know there's large populations living there so in the 10th century for example in the 900s uh, we know of, of significant jewish populations that are worshiping in relative freedom that are able to establish uh yeshiva who are able to uh, to study and, and enter into discourse in public um and they have some ability to petition the muslim governors of the city and to make requests, right? So if taxes are too high, they can they can petition the governor. They could even write to the caliph in Cairo and ask for some kind of uh, relief from heavy burdens. And so that they can they can ask questions, they can they can petition, they can solicit, but ultimately they're not in charge. So perhaps the most the most well known, I guess, uh in popular history um kind of events during this period are the Crusades. Um, when the when the Christian armies of Europe, I guess, kind of march on Jerusalem, try and take Jerusalem, um, you know, you you write that at least the first Crusades are kind of the the exception that proves the rule when it comes to uh, tolerance in in Jerusalem, um, and I wonder kind of why why how, how you how you come to that conclusion. Yeah, that was a strange thing that I stumbled on. <laughs> um, usually. The First Crusade is seen as a disaster, total disaster, and it is in many ways. Um, but what I see is from the beginning of the Muslim rule, you see this kind of putting up with that I spoke about earlier, right? So the Jews can live there. They can own property or at least rent property. Uh, they can worship. They can do these sorts of things. They can petition. <coughs> Pardon me. The First Crusade puts an end to that. It expels all Jews from the city. They can no longer do those things. They can't live there anymore. Uh, they can't even come in and trade for quite a long time. There's laws passed uh, to prevent this. So they sort of disappear from sight. And it takes several decades for them to come back. When they do come back, they're renters. They are... Um, mostly uh, cloth dyers, uh, they're, they're working jobs, but they're in such small numbers, right? Um, and so it begins this kind of rebuilding process. It can take a long time for the Jewish presence to come back, right? But what I found is, is that, that that event, the First Crusade, 
that is really the first time something like that had happened. Uh, the idea of expelling all Muslims and Jews, that had not happened um, in the other sieges. When the Persians came into town, they did not expel all the Christians from Jerusalem. When the Muslims came into town, they didn't expel the Christians. And in fact, the Jews in 638 had been thrown out by the Byzantines. The, you know, Umar welcomes them back in. He actually brings them back into the city. And then there's several other attacks on the city throughout the, um, there's another one in the 10th century and there's several in the 11th century. Um, in none of those events were religious populations exiled from the city. Never. Uh, they, they weren't, they weren't kicked out even when there was some pretty savage, um, uh, violence. Um, so for example, in the, um, in the 11th century in 1077, uh, there's some Sunni versus Shia violence in the city, but even then you don't have an expulsion of all Shia out of the city. Um, you have this, this kind of rough living together situation, right? Um, so the first crusade is, is very different. It, it goes against all the rules. It goes against all precedent. It establishes a Christian, uh, state, a Christian exclusive state. Um, it's the, the, the main example of that, but what happens after that is you go a couple decades of just Christians living in essentially a ghost town, right? I mean, there's no one living there. Um, just a, a few of the crusaders who had decided to sit down. The population is, is easily less than 3000 and probably far less than that at the beginning. They realize that you can't simply, you just simply can't live without these diverse communities around. And so eventually Arab traders are allowed back into the city. Muslims are allowed to come back in. Tariffs are lowered. There used to be a, a tax you would pay to come into the city. They'll, they'll get rid of that. Um, you'll see their populations growing. In time, within just four decades, I actually found evidence of Muslims praying on the Temple Mount again with Christian permission. I mean, with the actual permission of the Knights Templar uh, who run the Al-Aqsa Mosque there so that Muslims can pray on the, on the top of the, um, of the plateau. <coughs> so my point, I suppose, is that it was a shocking, horrible thing, but it's the one time it happened. Um, and why is it that all these other times you didn't have anything like that? You had much more tolerance than you did in 1099. So perhaps one of the most you know, well-known um, leaders in this time is is Saladin. I think he's who's pretty well respected in both uh, both Muslim and European tellings of of this history. Um, but I'm sure much of this is is myth or or exaggeration. Um, how, how does Saladin fit into this history of uh, of Jerusalem and interfaith relations in Jerusalem? He's he's a huge part of the story, right? Huge part of the story. The um... The, there is a lot of myth surrounding him. Every generation seems to have remade Saladin in its own image, right? Um, he's seen as a, you know, sometimes as a chivalric knight um, in the eyes of, say, French commentators. Uh, you know, the, the beacon of justice, uh, a wonderful fair man and intellectual, uh, and always juxtaposed against the Crusaders, right? The Crusaders are the barbaric um, uh, bringers of death and destruction. Um, they're impious. Um, they don't care about uh, blaspheming the sites of Islam and these sorts of things. And, and of course, they sack the city in 1099 and expel all the non-Christians. And Saladin is usually put up as a, a counterpoint to that, right? Because 
when he takes the city and he conquers it in uh, the fall of 1187, he's he has that opportunity. He can get revenge. One of the sources um, claims that you know this is suggested to him. This is the the time to to get revenge for the first crusade, and he, and he demurs and he says, "No, I I, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to um, I'm not going to act the way that my you know our adversaries act. I'm going to be the better person." Um, and so because of that, he gets looked at as this sort of wonderful, um, tolerant, and that is the word that's that's very often used, um, respectable person who instead of killing the Christians in the city, he lets them go, right? Uh, or he lets them stay, or he um, he's, he's sort of nicer to them. Um, then afterwards, uh, we don't know exactly when, it seems that he allows... Uh, the, the the permanent residence of Jews back in the city, so that's kind of another element to it, right? Because you're you're moving from um, this sort of this this Christian rule to here comes a a wise Muslim ruler who who has Christians, Muslims, and now Jews uh, living next to each other, and all with the ability to worship uh, freely in the city, right? And so you can see how that's appealing to modern audiences, right? That that's sort of what what a lot of people are looking for these days, right? That that kind of tolerance, and not only tolerance, but if if you're in a position saying Christians are, you know, they can worship in their own church and I will help them do it. Um, I will move Jews back into the city. That's going beyond tolerance, right? So that's his reputation. (coughs) The problem is so much of it is stylized, right? Um, He does retake the city. Uh, He does refuse a massacre. Um, What he does do is he ransoms the population, uh, so the people who can afford it can buy their freedom. They can pay him um, and pay his um, his soldiers who have taken ownership of them um, to gain their freedom. And a lot of them do. Several thousand of them do. They have money. Uh, for the remainder that has no money, however, uh, those who cannot afford to be ransomed, they become slaves. They are sold into the slave markets. Um, and there is evidence in, in one Arabic chronicle, and it's something that people have not wanted sort of touch before. It's one of those, one of those things. It's a, it's a little hot uh, and controversial. One of the sources, which is written by um, one of his closest confidants and, and one of his biographers, in fact, um, that before the women of Jerusalem were, were finally sold into slavery, uh, that they were allowed that the, um, that his soldiers were allowed to uh, enjoy them first. So there is an allegation of mass rape, um, in the fall of 1187, in which the, the population of Jerusalem that had not been ransomed um, was was given over to the army. Uh, as I said, that's something that people don't really talk about very much. But but if you talk about that kind of thing, the complexion of Saladin starts to change a little bit, right? Uh, because yes, well, he's tolerant; he's not massacring everybody. Okay, that's better, right? Um, but is a is a mass rape of the population much better at all? Uh, it raises some some other interesting questions. Um, so so there's there's that. Um, after these events transpire, then you've got Saladin doing other things in the city that I think are you know considered praiseworthy. Um, he does allow. Uh, particularly the eastern sects of Christians to um, to come into the city and rebuild uh, their churches. Uh, some of those churches he does take away and convert into uh, mosques and madrasas. Um, other other places in the city he sort of you know decides are his. But but there is a softening under him. It's it's 
in some ways easier for these groups to come in and out of the city and to reside there than had been in years past. Um, so Saladin is, you know, it's, it's a complicated legacy and it depends on, on how you want to read the sources and how much of the myth you buy into. I will say when he takes Jerusalem, he is celebrated by the Arabic poetry as, as the greatest hero of Islam since Umar ibn al-Khattab since that caliph who had taken Jerusalem back in 638. They're very much viewed in the same manner, right? They both came to a city owned by somebody else. They both put it under siege. They both took the city uh, for Islam, which is a grand and glorious thing for those these writers, right? And both, after taking the city, had some measure of, of um, liberties that they were willing to grant. And so they could both see, be seen as somewhat tolerant. And so Umar and Saladin are sort of the two champions of medieval Islam uh, for the things that they did and for the things that they uh, didn't do. Um, so kind of end our conversation of the history with another um, another ruler. Uh, I'd like to end with kind of Emperor Frederick II, which, um, which you argue in the book kind of helps to set a uh, a status quo in Jerusalem that sticks around um, for centuries, almost all the way up until the uh, the establishment of the state of Israel in 1967, uh, or 967, um, all the way of the state of Israel, uh, you know, centuries later. Um, but what exactly did Frederick II do? So to me, this is one of the most fascinating aspects. I, mean, I had so much fun with this in the book. Um, and Frederick II scholars have known this for a long time, um, that the many wiles of this man, he's an incredibly complicated ruler. Um, and there's an awful lot of myths surrounding him, misunderstanding and um, sort of um, very contentious history, um, simply because of his place as a German emperor um, and the remembrance of him later on in the period, um, in, in the modern period, when people look back and um, are looking for German greatness and they find it in, in, in Frederick II, right? Um, in Jerusalem, he is he is a transformative figure um, for what he does on the so-called Sixth Crusade, his crusade. Um, this is a man who did not conquer Jerusalem by siege. He essentially acquired it in a treaty. He got it in a deal with the Sultan of Egypt, a man by the name of Al-Kamil. And in really a remarkable um, uh, circumstances, as the story goes, Frederick II and the Sultan Al-Kamil had a meeting and they actually had a, a meeting of the type that you really don't see very often, even even in this day and age, it's very difficult to find a one-on-one um, -on -one meeting between the two heads of state, no advisors present, no bodyguards, just in a room talking to each other about how to resolve their differences. And so you've got a, a Muslim ruler and a Christian ruler, and they hammer out an agreement together that looks an awful lot like what Umar had established in the seventh century. So Frederick comes out and he's going to be the new king of Jerusalem. He'll see to it that the crown is put on his head. He's going to claim the kingship and he's going to secure the city for Christianity. So the church of the Holy Sepulcher, um, which stands over the spot of Jesus's uh, resurrection, that is going to be a site of Christian worship. Other churches in the city are for Christian worship, but he affirms in that agreement in, in this in the year 1229, that Muslims retain the exclusive right to prayer on the Temple Mount, that only Muslims 
can pray on the Temple Mount. So much so that there's a story of him taking a tour of the Temple Mount, and it very much seems like a tourist, finding a preacher walking around quoting from the Bible, and he throws him off. Right? He, he expels him. He says, you have, to, you have to get out of here. So he really sets the notion that it's Muslim rule on, t- on, top, on the top of the mount. Now, here's why that's so important and why it's so different from Umar. When Umar did it, he, of course, is a Muslim ruler, right? And so he acquires the city and establishes Islam on the mount. It's his right. Um, the city is his. This is a Christian ruler who is affirming Muslim rights, exclusive rights on that mount um, and sets that standard that will persist all the way until the 20th century. Now, there is a little hiccup um, as you get into the 1240s. Um, there is about a year where that changes um, in, in, a, in a very complicated series of, um, of fighting back and forth. But overall, except for that little blip from 1229 all the way until very, very recently, the, um, the standard has been exclusive Muslim prayer on the Temple Mount that was granted by a Christian ruler in a deal worked out with a Muslim ruler. And so I find it absolutely fascinating. Now, here's the accusation. Frederick was reviled in his day for being too close to Islam, for being too sympathetic to Muslims. He had a Muslim bodyguard, for example. He had written to the Sultan in personal letters, and so he had a friendship with this guy. More than that, he had sponsored some other Muslim initiatives. And so people, when this deal was announced, when when it was announced, people were upset. (coughs) Christians were upset because they saw him as giving away the Temple Mount, um, when he didn't have to, you're in charge of the city. You can you can do whatever you want. Why would you give it away, right? Um, and the Muslims are not happy either. Even though they've received rights to the mount, they are very upset at the Sultan of Egypt for giving away the rest of the city and, and giving this, this, this crown, which they see as illegitimate, uh, to another Christian leader. So both the rulers are highly controversial in their own day. Both of them are reviled and preached against in sermons, but it's stuck. And Frederick's agreement, really, that that notion of exclusivity for Muslims up top on the Mount has endured. <coughs> As I point out in the book, um, it's endured so strongly that you can you can ride up to the 20th century, um, up to the Six Day War in 1967, when the Israelis reclaim the Temple Mount, and um, and have the opportunity uh, now that they are masters of the city right? To, um, to expel the Muslims, to, to burn the holy sites down, to restore uh, Jewish worship up top. And, um, and the, the Israeli um, Minister of Defense, Moish Dayan, um, simply refuses and says, no, the status quo is what we're going to stay with. We're, you know, this is a, a Muslim place for prayer. Um, echoing what Frederick II did all the way back in 1229, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so what I try to do in the book is, is establish that you can kind of find this line um, in which, you know, Muslim rulers and Christian rulers across the Middle Ages are constantly reaffirming the rights that each other have in the city. Um, the sticking point, of course, is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, that the Jews are left out of this conversation. And one imagines if you had had some, some, um, some Jewish elites at these meetings, they might have made a pitch 
um, for 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 their place on the mount as well. The 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 positive side of that is that it appears that in this period you also have the solidification for Jewish prayer at the Western Wall, which itself is affirmed by Christian and Muslim rulers alike as a legal thing. And that tradition also goes way back uh, to the 12th century and uh, firms up in the 13th century and exists today. So the time of Frederick II is is absolutely amazing for Jerusalem's history. It really sets the standard by which we currently operate in the city. And if you read the news, you'll see that all of this is now all of a sudden being questioned with the, um, the idea of possibly permitting Jewish uh, prayer up on the mount and these sorts of things and these high profile visitations uh, by Jewish leaders. And that's brought all of this controversy to the fore um, really over a question that had been settled um, back in the 13th century. Well, I think that's a that's a great place to end our conversation with John Hostler, author of Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of War and Peace. John, I actually have a couple more questions for you just to just to wrap things up. And they are uh, where can people find your work and what might the next project be? What's next for you? Uh-huh. Uh, so the um, the book is called um, Jerusalem Falls, Seven Centuries of War and Peace. It's published by Yale University Press. Uh, so you can find it at any any bookseller uh, online, hopefully some bookshops as well. Um, the what's coming next for me is i'm I'm starting a project on uh, travel and encounter in the twelfth century between Muslims and Christians, um, particularly uh, military encounters uh, as 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 people moved back and forth across three continents, uh, meeting each other and um, and developing relationships with each other, and in a sense, kind of creating storylines that would continue down the road. And so uh, that's that's the next thing for me. Uh, I don't have a title for it yet. I'm, I'm working on it at the moment, but um, it'll be it'll be something to that degree about um, I'm, I'm very fascinated by these um, these times when Muslims, Christians, Jews and people of other persuasions um, come together and and eke out uh, deals and, um, and, and have conflicts and find resolutions. Those are the things that interest me. So I'm going to try to write a, a sort of an East-West um, travelers from Europe and the Middle East back and forth as they meet each other. That's, that's the, the project and its origins at the moment. That sounds very cool. And I'd want to learn more about that when the time comes. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, we hope you subscribe to listen to the Asian Review Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Uh, stay tuned for information who's, who's going up on the show. But before then, John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.